good life To be free and explore the unknown Hey, how are you? Good morning. And it was the year was 1962. Crooner Tony Bennett sang these words to finish up his song entitled The Good Life. He said, it's the good life to be free and explore the unknown. Like the heartaches, when you learn you must face them alone. Please remember, I still want you, and in case you wonder why, well, just wake up, kiss the good life. Goodbye. Wow, that's a real pick-me-up, Tony. Thank you for that. That's very sweet. 45 years later, we heard a song that sounded something like this. The good life, so keep it coming with the bottles so she feel booze like she bombed out of Apollo. The good life, it feels like... Yeah, the year was 2007. Kanye West, along with T-Pain, rap these lyrics in their song, Good Life. The good life, so keep it coming with bottles, because she feel like booze, like she bombed at Apollo. The good life, it feel like Houston, it feel like Philly, it feel like DC. Okay, time out. Okay, guys, I've been to Houston. <laughs> it, it so totally does not feel like the good life. Do you know? Some of you can corroborate my testimony on that. All right. So, it was 2010, just three years later, we heard this song. So that was uh, self-proclaimed pop rocker Ryan Tedder of One Republic, who sang these words in a song called, you guessed it, Good Life. Hopelessly, I feel like there might be something that I'll miss. Hopelessly, I feel like the window closes oh so quick. Hopelessly, I'm taking a mental picture of you now, because hopelessly, the hope is we have so much to feel good about. Oh, this has got to be the good life. It's interesting. It seems that everyone, regardless of generation, musical style, preference, is uh, talking about the good life. And perhaps that could easily be explained by the fact that so many of us are searching for the good life, right? So we're wrapping up a series today called Is Jesus Fake News? And in a world where we are literally inundated and overloaded with information and misinformation and disinformation, we're checking out some of Jesus' most audacious claims and we're asking, fake or real? I mean, because we get so much information. It was like, oh, maybe that's it. Maybe that's, I don't know. And we're asking, fake or real? And perhaps... The most audacious claim of Jesus is housed in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus says of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Two weeks ago, John stood here and he, and he discussed Jesus' audacious claim of being the way. Not a way, the way. Last week, John discussed Jesus' claim to being the truth and opened up what it looks like to, to, to look honestly and truthfully at God's reality. Today we're focusing on, we're going to talk about Jesus' claim that he is the life. And we're going to be asking, what difference would it make in our own lives if we decided to actually take him seriously? If we actually took seriously what he said and we decided to apprentice under him, to follow him, not just believe, but, but follow after him as the very life maybe we've been looking for all along. 
you would think it would be easier and much less controversial to talk about life. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, being that it's the one thing that every single one of us, regardless of how we came into this room, regardless of what culture we come from, regardless of our background, we all share one thing in common, and that thing is life. You think it'd be so much easier to talk about. The three songs I mentioned just a few moments ago, uh, grapple and wrestle and try to describe some version of a good life, and honestly, they all just sound confusing to me. But perhaps in an odd way, that, that makes sense, because life can be so confusing, right? Author John Eldridge describes it this way. I love this. He says, most of us live in a fog. It's like life is a movie we arrive to 20 minutes late. You know something important seems to be going on, but we can't figure it out. If you think about it, that's actually pretty accurate. Life really is a lot like this. Yeah, so that's pretty much it in a nutshell, right? <laughs> I mean, life can feel like just some random movie that we just pop in on, right? And you have no idea what's going on, and you're like, what's that sound? What? And then you're kind of like, huh? And it's like, what? Are those frogs falling from the sky? What? Why? I mean, that's kind of what we get with life. You just kind of pop in. So when Jesus says, I am the life in John 14, 16, having also said these words just a few chapters before in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. When we hear these things, we're left with some other questions. Questions like, okay, hold on, did I come into life where something had already been stolen from me? Because I feel like something is missing, and, and, or, or just that I'm missing out quite a bit of the time. Or maybe this question, uh, what is life to the full? 
can I have some of that? Because I feel like something is missing and I have these cravings that I just can't seem to satisfy. Or or here's a good one. Is it possible that I'm not missing out nearly as much as I'm just missing what I was intended to have all along? Because it feels like there's so much more to life than this and I can't seem to figure it out or to gain access to it. Maybe in order to figure it out, what we have to do is actually rewind to the very beginning. Uh, Maybe in order to understand life, we have to go back, rewind the script all the way to the beginning. Do you know that the word Jesus uses to describe himself as the life is the very same word that's found in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, which means beginning? It reads this way, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. The word life there is one and the same with the word that Jesus uses to describe himself. In Greek, it's the word zoe. Zoe is a small small word with a very big meaning. It literally means eternal life, never-ending life, immortality. So in Genesis, it says that God breathed zoe. It says God breathed immortality into the man. And Jesus then says, I am the immortal life that was intended for humanity and once was lost. Okay, okay, more questions, right? Okay, what happened? Who took it? How do I get it back? Well, we'll get to the third question, how do I get it back, in just a bit. But in order to answer the first two of those questions, what happened and who took it, we have to remember John 10.10 that we read just a moment ago, where Jesus says there's a thief who's come to steal and kill and destroy. Who's this thief? Well, for that, again... We have to rewind to the very beginning. The opening scene in the film of life takes place in a garden called Eden. It is a lush paradise where everything is perfect. It's where God breathed life, this zoe, this immortality into the lungs of a man, and then created a woman of the very same essence. God gives clear instructions here in the garden, and the instructions are literally this. You're free. A lot of us miss that, but the instructions are, you're free. You have free reign over everything. You're free. Because that's what love is. Love is freedom. And God says, you are free. You, could, you have thousands of choices that are good, that you could make, that would literally fill you. But there's this one thing and one tree you must not eat from. It went down something like this. It reads this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see the subtlety there? Did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree? And the woman corrects. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. 
For God knows that if you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And there's the thief. There's that, the enemy stealing truth from us and trying to destroy the very life we were made for and intended to have from the very beginning. It's the constant voice of this enemy that still says to this day, there's a better life than the immortal one that God intended for you originally. God's holding out on you still. There's a better reality. God's reality is not good enough, and it is a lie. So what happened? A little spoiler alert here. Um, Eve would go on and eat of the tree. I don't know if it spoiled that for anybody there, but I don't know if you know. But Eve would go on and eat the fruit from the tree, so would Adam, and with it came death. Don't miss that. With that came death, something that was never meant for us. And we've been missing what was lost and stolen ever since. Zoe, life, immortality. When it comes to this kind of thing, people always ask me two different questions. One, they ask me, Rob, why do you hate snakes so much? And I'm like, I read Genesis, seriously. <laughs> like, have you read? Have you, have you not read? It's no good. And they're slithery, and they bite, and they venom. They're just not good. Okay, so, but seriously, the scene in Eden really happen? I mean, did it actually happen? Because you might be thinking, seriously, a talking snake, this is why I don't read or really trust the Bible. And I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you if maybe you've ever had um, an evil thought just sort of pop into your mind. And I mean a thought so evil, so diabolical, so just profoundly wrong that it confounded even you. Like, where did it come from? Has anyone ever had a thought? Please tell me I'm not the only one. Hey, you. Man, I would be so messed up if I was like, there was like a thousand people and I was the only one. Uh, that would be weird. <laughs> what, what, what if you could see an image of what was being put in your mind by, by who was delivering that thought to your mind? I mean, maybe it could take the form, for me it could, the form of a serpent. It's not a stretch at all. For me to think that. And, and so the question remains, but did the scene in Eden really happen? And to that, I always say this, it's too real to be fiction. I mean, it, it may be mystical, I agree, yes, but it's certainly not mythical. It answers so many questions in my life. I mean, if you ask me honestly, I would say Eden not only happened, Eden happens all the time. My whole life is in Eden. That, that, that thing where it's like, oh, thousands of good options, and yet mysteriously drawn to the one thing that I'm like, but that suddenly looks really good to me, right? Whatever that is, that clear instruction you get, Rob, Rob, don't do that. I'm sorry, what? Don't do what? Could you just point out clearly what the thing I'm not supposed to do is, just so I know? In reality, I'm more curious than ever. Why can't I do that? Is somebody holding out on me? Is there something good there? Because the lie originated in Eden. Oh, there's something better. You're holding out on me. 
There's something good there, and you're trying to keep me from something good, and I want good. I want the good life. And yet there's thousands of good options for me over and over again, yet I'm always going to the one thing or the certain things that don't produce life for me. And they never have. That's the, that's the crazy part, is that I've done it before, and it's never given me good life. And yet somehow I'm there, and I'm like, oh, but it looks good this time. Maybe this time I'll get the good life. And I engage. Ah, and it's rotten, and I'm like, oh, it never, why do I keep doing it? It never works. Man, Eden not only happened, if you ask me, it happens all the, whole, the, all the time. My whole life is in Eden, and ever since Eden, every human shows up feeling like they arrived 20 minutes too late, wondering what they've missed, and we start cramming all kinds of junk, feeling like it's going to give us the good life. We start cramming it into what has been described, like we have these cravings and we just got to cram junk into these cravings because we feel like somehow we're missing out on some good life and we just cram junk in there into what has been called the God-shaped hole. That's a phrase that was credited to a famous philosopher named Pascal. And regardless of who said it, we all feel it, right? I mean, we all know all too well what this God-shaped hole is like, that we're just keeping, we, take, we spend money and time and energy just trying to fill it, just trying to stuff something in it, just to get a piece of the good life that we're yearning for, and yet somehow always seems to feel like it's still out of reach. I want to describe for you just a few scenes in life that I've observed, and this is hardly an exhaustive list, you guys, hardly an exhaustive list. Just some things I've taken note of that involve humans trying to satisfy these God-shaped whole cravings that we have in a quest to find some version of the good life. First out, we'll talk about that guy. He's that guy that works 70 hours a week minimum, right? He's just killing himself to find a piece of success. He's burning the candle at both ends as he burns through every relationship. His manhood, his machismo riding on every deal because what a rush when he closes a deal, any deal, it doesn't matter what the deal is. If he closes a deal, he gets such a rush. And it's a rush that continually yields diminishing returns in his attempt to find a piece of the good life. You know that guy? Maybe you are that guy. I don't know. It's getting a little personal there, huh? How about that gal? It's that gal who, who just tells herself and everybody else, it's just sex. And it feels good, and if it feels good, it must lead to the good life. And so she has it a lot with a lot of people. And she tells herself, it's just sex, and it's okay. But with every single encounter, it feels like something is being taken from her. Something is being removed. Some critical part is being stolen in her quest to find this good life. Or it's the dude. The dude, man, he just, I just like one hit every few days, man. And now it's every day. And now it's like I need it every day. And now I need a little, I need a little, need a little before bed so I can sleep. Right? And he suffers from profound anxieties and extreme insecurities, and he's just trying to anesthetize in hopes that he'll get a piece of the good life. Or maybe it's the man or the woman who avoids the trappings of everything I've already mentioned, and they might even look at those things and say, oh, no, no, I would never do that. 
I would never do those things. Those things would never give me the good life. And they would say, no, I wouldn't do that. And so they look to all things healthy, right? So from food to fitness to figs and flaxseed, I mean, they are focused. (laughs) These are some of the most focused individuals I've ever met. And they are focused on the perfect BMI and finding the perfect kale chips, right? (laughs) (laughs) Only to someday realize that Father Time eventually catches up to all of us, and even their version of the good life is short-lived, and also to realize there is no such thing as the perfect kale chips, seriously. So (laughs) the rest of us know already, we'll take our word for it, okay? It's no such thing. Listen, don't miss this. When our insatiable desire and appetite for the good life goes unsatisfied, our despair often spirals down into even more sinister cravings as we spin into a dizzying vortex. This is life outside of God's reality. It's the lie, and it's most definitively not the good life. And still, we buy more things, we accrue more stuff, we consume more goods, and yet we're emptier than ever. We try hookups, quick fixes, and cheap substitutes, and we're lonelier than we've ever been. We think to ourselves, we dupe ourselves into thinking, man, if only I had, if only I had that. Just fill in the blank, whatever that is, right? If only I had that, then, then I'd be satisfied. And here's the brutal truth. No. You would just have that and yet eventually still feel like something is missing. So earlier I said we'd come back to the question of how do we get it back? How do I get back what was lost? This thing you're describing that feels like, yes, it feels like there's something more, and I'm constantly trying to feed it. How do I get it back? And the answer to how do I get back that immortal life that was lost from the very beginning The answer is simple, in Jesus, in Jesus, Jesus offers the way back to the very life that was meant for for us from the very beginning. That's why he's the way, that's why he's the truth, and that's why he is the life, the very life that once was lost. Because and Thomas in God's reality, what we need, what we actually need is him. That's what we need. Everything else is just there for us to be free, to enjoy, not abused. I can't even begin to tell you my awareness now that I am free. Now, listen, don't, hear me, don't mishear me. I'm free to enjoy my spouse so much more since I've committed my life to Jesus. I no longer need to put some pressure on my spouse to give me the so-called good life. I no longer need to look to my spouse to in some way save me. I no longer need uh, uh, to, to put pressure on her that she could never deliver, right? I'm now free and able to enjoy a good life with her because I found the life in Christ. Now, I'm free, I'm cognitively aware I am now free to enjoy my children so much more since committing my life to Jesus. 
I no longer need to put some burden on them that they could never live up to. I no longer need to do that. I no longer need to try to somehow live vicariously through them to make some kind of attempt of, to cling to my own youth through them, trying to and somehow get a taste of the good life through their successes. I don't need to do that. I am free and able to enjoy a good life with them. I am free, and I'm cognitively aware now that I am free to view my work so much differently since committing my life to Jesus. I'm free to actually enjoy my work in a whole different way. I no longer need to incessantly prove myself worthy of a piece of the so-called good life. I am now free and able to enjoy the good life of trying to help others find the life. Now please, seriously here, don't mishear me. I am not saying that this is just some cinch. Just, is Jesus and woo, easy breezy. That is not what I'm saying. I get frustrated. I mean, really frustrated. Lots of times with my spouse, my, my kids, and my work, actually, if I'm being honest. Right? But I will say this. I would not trade my worst day since knowing Jesus for my best day before I did. You might be like, well, why? Because like, I would be. Like, if I didn't know Jesus, I'd be like, well, why? why? Who would say I wouldn't trade my, my worst day since knowing Jesus for my best day before? Why? Uh, well, let me try to explain it this way. Uh, several years ago, in fact, many years ago, somewhere between 12 and 15 years ago, rewind again, uh, my family, my wife and I and our two kids, lived in the mid-Atlantic on the coast in Virginia. And in our, in, our, in, our, in our yard were housed many trees, many tall trees. And one tree in particular uh, was just to the right side of our driveway as you pulled in. And this tree stood 50 feet tall if it was a foot. And it was housed in the middle of a flower bed, in the middle of a raised up flower bed that housed many beautiful flowers and a couple of azalea bushes. If you don't know what azalea bushes are, they grow in the east. They flower for two weeks and are beautiful, and the rest of the year you just got to trim them. They're kind of a pain. But anyway, um, so in this flower bed, lots of flowers, a couple of azaleas, and this big, big, tall tree. Now, what started to happen was that all the plants in the bed began to die. Just one by one, they just started dying, including the azalea bushes. And I totally remember thinking to myself, huh, well, that can't be good, right? I, I, should, I should probably do something about that. I should probably get that checked. But you know, fun little fact, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I was too busy. Too busy trying to find the good life, you know what I mean? So eventually, the tree itself, after everything in the bed had died and the tree was standing, eventually the tree itself, it began to foam at the base of the trunk. It started foaming, and it started to stink, like really badly. Like we'd get out of the car, and it was on my wife's side, Charlotte. She would get out, and she'd be like, oh, my gosh, what is it? Oh, that smell. I'd be like, oh, yeah, well, that can't be good. You know, I'm no horticulturist, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> even I know, I don't think that's supposed to happen, right? And I cognitively remember, I totally remember being like, 
I should probably do something about that. I should probably get that, you know, I should either get that checked and treated, or maybe I should have this tree taken out before something really bad happens. But fun little fact, I didn't. Yeah, I was just too busy. I'm too busy for that. Too busy for trying to find a piece of that good life, right? So one day we're driving home, and we pull into our cul-de-sac, as it were, and we pull in, and now the, the, our home in view, and can't help but notice that a certain 50-foot tree is not there. Trying to be an optimist, I'm like, oh, did some good Samaritan come and cut our tree down? You know? <laughs> but alas, no. <laughs> um, as we pulled up in full view now, we see that our tree has fallen, and it has fallen right towards our neighbor's house, and it has landed on their Chevy Malibu. Um, that they had just gotten like three weeks before. I totally am not kidding you. Uh, it's just smashed it. It's just totally like they're smashed. It's, it's ridiculous. I'm like, ah, oh, this is going to be awkward, right? <laughs> so so my, my neighbors, so you know, were amazingly gracious. They, they were a Christian couple that had just moved to the States recently from Africa. And so through their thick, amazing accents that I will not try to mimic, um, their accents, they just said, they laughed it off. They said, well, that's why you have insurance, right? You do have insurance, right? Yeah, and I did. And uh, in spite of my neglect, the claim was covered, and uh, we would sit and laugh together. And we started to draw a lot of the spiritual parallels that we saw in it. We, we, we'd muse and we'd talk about a lot of the spiritual parallels in the story the way we saw it. Um, because of a tree that basically got diseased at its roots. That's what happened. The tree officially got diseased at its roots, caused the whole thing to come down. So these are some of the things that we laughed about. Doesn't matter how tall or strong a tree is. The foundation is sick and it's weak. Eventually that sucker's coming down. And we talked about all the ramifications that, that could mean in our own lives, right? And then we talked about if you got a bad foundation, it doesn't just affect you. It affects all those around you, as evidenced by the plants that all died in relation to the tree. We talked about all the ramifications in our own lives of that. And we, talked, we said in life, you know, it's, we usually, if we're being honest, we usually get several warning signs, like these yellow flags, these red flags, that something is really wrong and something really bad could happen. And if we ignore these signs, it's usually not just to our detriment, but it's also to the detriment of those that are in the closest proximity to us. It's evidenced by my lack of attention and destroying my neighbor's car. Eventually, though, I'd come to realize that these weren't the only spiritual applications regarding this toxic tree. See, about a year later, I was going through a really, really difficult time. I was a first-time church planner. If you know what it means, it means I I started a church with my wife, and it's very difficult starting a church. It's hard to start anything. It doesn't exist, but churches are particularly hard, and I was having a particular tough time with a group of people. That never happens in a church. Um, <laughs> and I was having a difficult time, and I'd made some poor choices in leadership. Nothing big, nothing more, just like small things that were just kind of haunting me, and it was just difficult, and I'm six years into my faith, uh, barely, and, and honestly, up to that point, 
everything that I, every, every ministry I'd had the privilege of working in at that point had really just flourished. It really worked. I had faith. I had some basic talents. I had a solid work ethic. And everything just seemed to work. And suddenly, it just wasn't working like that. Suddenly, it was like, oh, no, not this time. It was as if God were really trying to stretch me and stretch my leadership capacity. And I got to tell you, it didn't feel very good. I wasn't enjoying it all that much. Life didn't feel good, and I just... I just wanted the good life, or I should say, the good feeling life. Just like everybody else, and sometimes when life doesn't feel good, it's like, well, this can't be the good life. And so, the brutal truth is, I wanted to quit, and I wanted to fold the church. I just wanted to quit. It was just so much harder than I thought it was going to be. I didn't want to persevere. And I want you to hear this, at the same time that I wanted to cut and run, At the same exact time in that season, I got no less than four credible job offers and two incredible job offers. Job opportunities that were just offered to me, and I wanted to take one of them, any one of them, because I just wanted out. And so I really want you to hear that for a second, because there is this sort of corrupt thinking sometimes in Christianity that goes like this, well, well, God will open a door, and if he opens a door, he'll want me to go through it. Well, what if six doors are open, and you want out? What if six doors? Because I want you to know that, that idea that God will just open a door and he wants you to walk through, it's not, not necessarily biblical. What is biblical is intimacy with God and obedience. And, and so... I didn't know what to do, but I knew what I did want to do. I wanted to quit. I wanted to cut and run. And so one evening after a series of really hard rains in the area and some really bad storms, I went for a walk to talk to God about it. I took my camera along because taking pictures often helps me tap into a deeper sense of prayer. And that night, man, my prayers were like those of the psalmist, white-knuckled and fists raised in the air. Why, God? Why? What are you doing? I don't know if you've ever felt that way. It's just like, what is happening? And I have to tell you that as I prayed, it was as if God, and even I was very insecure in that moment. God didn't seem so insecure. He seemed quite confident in his response to me. (laughs) He seemed really self-assured. And what I heard a bit sternly even was this, Rob, You can run from this if you want to, but you should know this, it's not going to go away. We either deal with this now or we deal with it later. It's the old, the only common denominator in all your problems is you and everywhere you go, there you are. And and I knew that God was basically saying, you got to gut this out. There's some things that I need you to incorporate into your life and then into the life of the church. And I was frustrated. I didn't just take it like, oh, okay. You know, it was like, ah. Right? And I was so frustrated. And I began to walk back up into my yard. And in my yard, as I walked up the driveway on the right-hand side, laid this now barren ground that once housed a 50-foot tree and beautiful plants. And it was now just like this toxic bed that still stunk. I still hadn't done anything about that stink. And it was just basically a, a pit of mud at this point from all the rains. And, and there were these little like, like brown figs that were growing in it. That was all that was there. They were like these dead figs, like thorny figs, and it was mud. 
And as I'm walking back up in my yard, really frustrated, I want to tell you about something that happened. And I have to imagine right now that the story is about to get a little strange for some of you. But I'm going to risk telling it anyway. As I'm walking up next to the, 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 the deathbed that once housed life, life, and now is just essentially a mud pit with these little like thorny figs, as I'm walking by, I felt the spirit of God just like literally come over me. And I heard in my mind like a whisper, I heard these words, Rob, lay down in the mud. (laughs) And I said, no. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. That's stupid. Yeah, I'm not doing that. (laughs) Nope. Yeah, that's just ridiculous and stupid, and I'm not, I, got, I want no part of that. It's not going to happen. And then again, I felt the presence of God even stronger, and I felt that, that whisper increase. It was, lay down in the mud. And I was like, no, no, uh, seriously, I got my good jeans on. No, no, yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm not doing that. that. That's like a disgusting, like, death pit. It stinks, it's gross. No, I'm, no. I'm drawing a line here. No. And then I felt the Spirit of God probably as strong as I'd ever had up to that point in my life overwhelm me. And it was, Rob, lay down in the mud. And I was like, oh, I don't want, come on, seriously, I don't want to do this. I I look like a fool to my neighbors. I mean, other than the Christians from Africa, I got lots of other neighbors. (laughs) I'm going to look like an idiot. I'll look like a fool, God. Turns out God's not nearly as concerned about that as I am. And again, I felt like God was saying, Rob, lay down. And finally, I was like, oh, and finally, I just succumbed. Finally, I just succumbed, and I got down. And I was like, fine. And I strapped my camera around my back, and I put my knees down on this raised flower bed, and I started to get my way down, and it was, oh, it smelled so bad. And I just started leaning into the mud, and oh, it was just disgusting. And I laid down in this mud pit, basically. And as I did, I just sort of like pulled my head up to look out at the horizon, and I was like, oh, oh. Oh, and then I saw it. And I was like, oh. And I reached for my camera and I snapped this photograph. And in the middle of that deathbed, there was a little flower, probably maybe an inch tall, growing in the middle of it. And it was something that you could only see if you were literally down in the mud laying down in the midst of death and new life right there in the midst of disgusting death. Fecal matter is fertilizer, right? And that evening, I don't want you to miss this, in that pit of mud, I I, I swear it was just me and it was just Jesus and he was saying to me, don't you see, I am God. And I can bring life out of anything, even death itself. I've done it. I can certainly handle everything else that feels like death. I beat death because I am the life. You don't have to run anymore and look to less than lovers and less than life givers. I am right here. So again, I say, I would not trade my worst day since knowing Jesus for my best day before I did. You ask why, I'll tell you again, because sometimes God will take us through times that feel like death in order for us to understand the true life, 
that he is and the life that only can be found in Jesus, and it's totally worth it. Because the angst of being disconnected from the life that you were intended to have, that I was intended to have, from Jesus, that burden is a tremendous weight that can be lifted only in him and by him. Because I no longer have to live in shame of trying to measure up or prove myself worthy of the so-called good life that is more slippery than a bar of wet soap. Because I believe Jesus when he says... Whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life, will have Zoe. Because I believe the words of Paul, the apostle of Jesus, one of the first Christians who wrote these very words to the church in Rome. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is to give it a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit, touches our, God, God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. We know who he is, and we know who we are, father and children, and we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through, and if we go through the hard times with him, then we'll certainly, we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. And that's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the very same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. So maybe today, this is the very moment where your joyful anticipation is being deepened. Perhaps there are signs in your life that you've been looking for life in all the wrong places. And you're ready to put that old way of life to death in order to come into the new life that is Christ. Maybe just now for the first time ever, you're realizing how extravagant the love of Jesus is for you, and there's nothing fake about it at all. He's the way, he's the truth, he's the life, and all these things are more real than you've ever imagined, and all it requires is faith. Perhaps you're ready today to put your faith in him for the very first time in order that you might have the life that you've been looking for all along. If that describes you, I wanted to say a quick prayer. Maybe you would say it silently to yourself right now. You would just say, God, I, I believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. That he is the life. He is the life that I've been longing for. And God, I'm sorry for all the choices I've made trying to find some sense of good life and all the things that can't give it. God, will you forgive me for those choices? And, and, and God, I ask Jesus to come into my life right now that I might forever walk with him. Amen. Regardless of where you are right now, my prayer is that as the band plays that you will consider how you will respond to Jesus.